When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We have David Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group. His latest book is There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. And we have Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services and Chicago's leading restaurateur. By the way, Jim Urio, what, uh, how's the restaurant business in Chicago look like? I always like to use you as an economic what? indicator. Up to this point, it's been pretty good. Anecdotally, I've started hearing that there's some some changes over the last couple weeks, and even anecdotally, the friends I hear who are you know in a pretty decent socioeconomic range, starting to talking about the bills at restaurants and how they're starting to cut back. So it's been good up until this point. I think the weather changing will delay any sort of um, you know negative impact for a bit. But I think that, you know, what we're looking at, I mean, people's, our expenses are up 22%. So the the uh, profit margins are way, way down. It's become somewhat of a bad business in Illinois, particularly they've raised a minimum wage twice in the last 14 months uh, into the teeth of this nonsense. So I, I think it's going to be really difficult. But so far, it's not bad, to be honest. Yeah, terrific idea, raising the minimum wage. Amen. Uh, <laughs> with wages rising everywhere anyway. But can I ask you a follow-up on this Food prices. I was just talking to Tyler Goodspeed about this. And, you know, uh, I guess because of the war, right? So wheat, grains, fertilizers, uh, supply problems because the Black Sea, all those depots, you know, through from which exports flow uh, have been shut down, basically. So what are food prices doing to the, to the business? And they're going absolutely through the roof. But one thing I don't like is that all those things you mentioned are, are very pertinent and, and they're happening right now. But a lot of these things were going up to begin with. You know, Milton Friedman, inflation is always never a monetary phenomenon. Remember, we increased the money supply by 40 percent in two years. I mean, you know that, obviously. But so these things were all moving. And if you want proof of that, I can whiteboard it out and show you commodities that are completely unaffected by Russia that are go- have gone up the same amount or similar amounts. So they've gone up across the board. The orchestrators of this nonsense have to be in a panic, and I think that the, that they are. I think it's one thing for the Fed to sit back and visualize how wonderful 4% inflation would be for a while to inflate us out of our debt and our pension obligations. It's another thing to see fires in Peru and Sri Lanka and Venezuela when people are starting to rise up. So I think we're in a, in a terrible spot, and food is where it's going to hit the worst, obviously. David Bonson, what are rising interest rates going to do to the stock market? I mean, and 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 I was just looking through some of my stock sheets. So the two years, this is year to date. The two-year treasury is up 178 bips. The 10-year is up 119. The Fed funds rate is just starting to creep up. Fed funds rate is going to have to go up a whole lot more, a whole lot more. And the Fed is, um, is uh, now running off their bond portfolio. So you're going to get, I mean, I think you've got an interest rate explosion here on the horizon. What do you make of that? What's that going to do to stocks? 
Yeah, I think that the 10-year has already priced the bulk of that, and, and all I can do is try my best to avoid a deja vu here. Because we went through this in 2015, stocks were up, 16 stocks were up, 17 stocks were up. And the fact of the matter is that where the 10-year is sitting here, let's call it 2.5%, so a little bit less than half of its 50-year average. But the three months to the 10-year is really quite wide, while the 2 and 10 have basically inverted. And so I think that's the market telling you that the Fed is behind getting the Fed funds rate up, but then once you get out on the curve, that's about as far as it's going to go, that they don't believe the Fed is going to get as as far as really they need to for normalization. Um, so what, what it does to stocks, Larry, well, um, I think the high P.E. stocks have to come down. And I think if interest rates didn't go up, the high P.E. stocks have to come down. But right now, we, you just said, what, the 10 years up 120 basis points on the year? The Dow's down 4%. So I think uh, that answers where, where the rate effect of stocks is. That's a very benign view. <laughs> very it's, benign it, view. But, it, but it, it's, benign, it's benign only <laughs> um, in this sense. That I, I guess what I would argue, Larry, and this is an important point, I do not think it's benign for all aspects. I just don't think it's going to be equally distributed. If I was dependent on a 50 times P.E. going to 70 times, I'd be very, very worried because I don't think in a 2.5% tenure you can get that kind of multiple expansion. But if your stock portfolio is focused on free cash flow growth, then you really don't have to care as much about the uh, pricing impact from the tenure. And so I think it is benign for some aspects of equities and not for all. And that's the argument for nuance I'm making that active management can give and that indexing cannot. I can hit you with a more dramatic and hyperbolic take on that, too, if you want a little more. If you want a little more adjectives. I I think that when you see what Bill Dudley wrote in that commentary in Bloomberg uh, the other day about how the Fed, it would be best to reverse the wealth effect in a sense, knocking down investable assets. I mean, what kind of God complex wild hubris as it is to think that they can control the markets that they do. But the point that it underscores to me is that I think in the past, I would say that they weren't willing to to look at a 10% decline in stocks and not flinch. Now I think in their head, they think a 20 to 25% decline in stocks is doable. And they sent Lyle Brainerd out, who's you know one of the queen of the doves, to speak hawkishly. <laughs> the market is pricing it. The queen of the doves is well, one well, of your things, right? <laughs> Jim, Jim, you say they're willing. When you say they're willing, you're talking about Bill Dudley. So they're all willing to when they become op-ed writers. And are no, no, that's a great point. That, that's an excellent point. He's no longer part of the Fed. But, I mean, he is a Fed insider. It has to have some yeah. sort of no, creep. I'm, I'm saying it, it's the exception that proves the rule. When he was a Fed governor, there wasn't a willingness to see risk assets suffer 5% for him. For 15 years, they wouldn't do anything but coddle housing, coddle stocks, coddle credit. Now, all of a sudden, he doesn't have skin in the game. He's willing to write that op-ed. I don't take him seriously for a second. Yeah, but I think, uh, look, here's a question, Jim Uriel. What, the, the 10 years at 370, uh, I'm sorry, 270, it's up 119 basis If you take your eyes off, it'll be at 370 in a couple minutes. But anyway, go yeah. on. <laughs> no, no, that's where I'm going. I think yeah. you got a 35 to 4% 10-year, and I think it's coming soon. What's your take on that? 
Yes. So what, one thing they have to remember, too, is that it's just been in the last couple of weeks that the Fed wasn't actually buying long-end bonds. Now, they've right. just stopped, and now they've just started the rhetoric about how um, they're going to let it roll off, which I, I'm not so I, – yes, I think rates are going higher, and I think this is the first time we've taken the uh, leash off them to see where they're actually going to normalize, I guess is the right word. The one thing I think is interesting is that you know we were we had a um, – you know, an inversion just two weeks ago. And now, I mean, plus plus 19 is nothing to write home about, but it's starting to steepen out a little bit. I think uh, long-end rates are going quite a bit higher. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't see – at 3.5% seems perfectly normal to me. All right, we're going to take – Jim, quick... I, I can't make any money talking about this on the radio with you. I want to take the other side of that trade with you. I want All right, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You can take the other side of the trade – on the other side of the break, I got to take commercial break. We got Dave Bonson of the Bonson Group and Jim Urio, TJM Institutional Services. I'm Larry Kudlow, the Queen of the Dubs. That's exactly right. Who's never admitted that she was actually a capitalist? We'll take a break and we'll come back in just a moment. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking stocks with David Bonson, founding. Founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group and author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. And Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services. Uh, David Bonson. Can I just, to clarify, David, you think that the uh, interest rates have peaked? Is that what you're saying? No, I think that the tenure at 270 can get a little higher. But let me just very quickly give you two numbers. 300 basis points was the 10-year after they stopped doing QE3. Six months later, 160 basis points. It was 160 before QE stopped. It got to 300, and six nine months later, it was a 160, and it stayed down there between 150 and 250 for a long time. And then, of course, all the COVID stuff you know, brought it down even further, and then now here we are coming higher and so forth. My point is that the end of QE, uh, three different times, saw the 10-year go up before it then went on to make a new low. And the, and the reason for this is not me being uh, bullish. It's actually a very bearish view. It's that I don't believe they can get the growth they need apart from real supply-side pro-growth initiatives. And the bond market has been saying this over and over again. And, and I don't disagree with the idea of talking about what would happen to markets. If the bond yields did, in fact, go higher, I'm just pointing out historically that we've been talking about this since I was in elementary school, and it just it just doesn't happen. I want to crack at this, Larry. You know I want to crack at this. Yeah, I mean, what I'll just comment uh, that we didn't have any inflation in those earlier uh, periods. So this is a different game, I think. But Jim Urio, go ahead. That was my point, is that I think that those times, David, and I, I actually, I, a couple points you made today I really, really respect. This is the one I'm going to go after, though, is that those times you speak of, there was an anticipation that the Fed could rev back up the money printing machine and start buying more QE. I don't think the market believes that because inflation is, you know, a runaway. I don't even think is a, is a hyperbolic way to, to describe it. So I think that there's the, the cavalry is not running in and buying bonds again, and I don't see who else would would be buying them in this sort of inflationary period. So that's yeah, but, why I disagree. But Jim, after, after QE3, we're not talking about that the market believed that the Fed would come back in and buy more bonds. In 2016, 17, 18, they were actively rolling off the balance sheet. Now, no, but every other central bank... Aggressive. 
Every other central bank was buying tons of bonds, too, and that was bleeding over to here. The spread between the German and the, and the U.S., I mean, it was relatively tight. I mean, there was other factors, all I'm saying is that. And the only one right now who talks about revving things up is the Bank of Japan. So I, I think that things are – I genuinely I hate to be the one who says this time it's different because so many times that turns around and bites you. But I do think this time it's a bit different. Well, we have – Yeah. I, I think you have – David, you don't believe the inflation is, is a permanent issue. I mean, that's at the root of your thinking. And I think that's the that's the cutting edge of the argument is whether this inflation is is transitory or permanent. And I think that I I think that you could take that inflation rate, gentlemen. Uh, The CPI is running at eight percent. Okay, you can take some pandemics out. You could take some war out. I still think you're left with a five or six percent inflation rate, and that is two or three times higher than the inflation rate uh, that existed during the prior periods you're talking about. So I think the only way you get to your point is if you uh, if you discount or disregard the inflation threat. I, I think that's at the root of this. Right, but I do. I agree with you. It's just that I'm not so much saying that that's what will happen. I'm saying that's what the bond market is saying will happen, and so it's the bond market is the signal here, not the effect. Now, is the bond market going to be wrong entirely? Which I think would be we'd all have to admit kind of unprecedented. I mean, generally the bond market here is speaking to what will be the case, not reflecting. But my point is that. Five or six, if they settle at an inflation rate of five or six, that's very different than if they settle at an inflation rate of three or four. And three or four is unacceptable to me. It's not only double their own stupid inflation target, but it's immoral. It punishes savers. It's bad for the economy. It's not stabilizing for King Dollar. But at three to four, I think they'd let it go. I don't think they care about three or four percent inflation. I do think five or six, if you're right, is a different story. But Jim uh, Urio, it just strikes me that the bond market is in a state of transition right now. That, and you know, the inflation expectations uh, are rising. I mean, one, one, and it's, it's. the suppression of interest rates by the Fed distorts a lot of this stuff, but the five-year break-evens are three and a half, just about three and a half percent, and that's a five-year forecast. So I, I think that the nominal bond market is is changing. I think it's changing its view, and I think the assistance from the Fed, uh, it's not drying up. Well, it is drying up. I'll use that phrase. The assistance from the Fed in the bond market is gradually drying up, Jim Muriel. Yeah, and I mean, that's completely evident. If, if we were to believe that QE was done to keep long-end rates artificially low, which, of course, that what other reason could it have been to do that? And now that they're allowing it to go on its own, it's in a period of transition for sure. The one thing I will say about the inflation that we haven't mentioned yet, I do see some time in the future where higher rates, declining risk asset prices, um, it, the other thing is the cure for higher prices is higher prices and supply chains easing up all could be happening at the same time. I think that's quite a while away. And I think there is going to be a recession. That's part of that. But I do. I mean, inflation won't last forever. I don't think. 
God, I hope not. So that's one thing I think that, David, I mean, if you're looking that forward in the bond market, which I don't believe, I just believe the bonds are transitioning right now. But I think there's some day the Fed is serious about getting rid of inflation. I think they will do it. But something's going to break in the meantime. One point, though, David, apart from rates is uh, profits, the mother's milk of stocks. Now, uh, Ed Hyman, for example, is saying you know, the profit story is still pretty strong. So that is, uh, I think, all year has been a helpmate to the stock market. Yeah, well, it's the story of the stock market. I learned it from you. Um, the question is the profit growth relative to the multiple. And so if all of a sudden, instead of getting 40% year-over-year profit growth like last year, you get 10%, but you're already at a 20 times multiple, you just simply don't have room to get double-digit moves in stocks, and in fact, you could even get with a little bit of downward movement in multiple, especially if you guys are closer to right about the interest rate. You know, what's the PE on the S&P if you really had a 3% handle on the 10-year? I think it's probably down to 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. That means uh, the S&P has to drop 15% with 10% profit growth, Larry. Mm-hmm. So that's why I just don't want to be reliant on multiple expansion. Things like energy, where you're getting huge profit growth, things like utilities that are kind of a safer haven, and then consumer staples that had priced in a lot. They didn't have great profit growth last year because of higher input prices. They now are in a position to pass that on and utilize their pricing power. Those make a lot more sense than technology. But but I, I think there's a little bit of disagreement. You know, obviously, I'm never going to say out loud I disagree with Larry on anything because you're my hero. But with Jim, Jim, I'm more comfortable disagreeing with, I guess. <laughs> 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 Ain't that always a story? <laughs> Jim Urio, what's the commodity market story? I think I, I still think that's where my focus is going to be, particularly like metals and miners. Um, a lot of you know some of the commodities have obviously are, you know are way. And again, we forget that the fundamental story favors commodities too. But you can get a little frothy based on market position. So some I don't like, but metals and miners I still like. I like gold and silver more than anything. And I know you usually hate gold and silver. And I I think that we're just running out of places to hide. And that's why I think those two things will 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 do well. Well, I think. Uh, yeah. What's your oil outlook? Me, you know that, and you, you guys laughed at me, and I hate to be – I'm not taking a victory lap because anything can happen in that market. But I thought that at 110, it had taken a lot of negative headlines and taken a lot of punches and you know, had some fits and starts trying to get higher than that. I think there is a belief that demand destruction happens around $4.50 a gallon, which is 50 cents higher than the, what the rule of thumb used to be. I am more negative on oil than positive. All right. David Bonson. And Jim Urio, a lovely Saturday discussion. Thank you, gentlemen.